0: Lord, you have placed on my heart a message and a a word from the next passage that we're coming to that has the potential without a spiritual touch, without a spiritual awakening, without a spiritual understanding could cause someone to be concerned, could create uncertainty. Lord, you didn't give this message to create uncertainty. You gave it to do the exact opposite, to make us certain Of our relationship with you. To bring a reality to what you are doing. And Lord, to at least allow us to expand our understanding of who you are as God alone. Because we have done such a poor job as pastors. Of preaching that truth. About the fullness of who you are. From grace and justice and power and authority. We have so altered this story that men and women within the church barely know you. And Lord, I pray that with everything we learn about you and your relationship with us, what your word says to us will bring us great hope and comfort and certainty. So Lord, I pray in this moment for just a downpouring of the spirit so that this truth can be received with the heart that I know that's in me, but that heart that is in you. This is going to be an odd one. Odd because we haven't heard this before. It brings a question. But it's a question designed to create hope and promise. And I pray, Lord, that it would accomplish nothing else tonight but that. I want this to be a night of great awakening. I want this to be the beginning of dynamic differences within your body, within individuals. Just a radical change tonight from this truth in Jesus' name amen we have been following jesus's steps all the way through the new testament he is quickly now coming to the cross and as i shared with you this is an intimate conversation that jesus has been having up through john chapter 16 in john chapter 17 the picture changes because the entirety of john 17 is a prayer It's not the Lord's Prayer, though it is the Lord's Prayer. It's not the model prayer. It's actually Jesus praying. I can't help but recognize how dynamic that moment is. That we're actually getting to hear the eavesdrop on Jesus praying. We don't have many glimpses into that. We don't know much about what the communication was between Father and Son. But here, recorded for us in John 17 is a conversation that Jesus had with his father. We notice, first of all, that he's going to pray for himself. He's going to pray for his disciples. and Then in verse 20, he's going to pray for us. I'm going to spend most of my time tonight on the part where he prays for us. I'll make brief comments about the other, but I want to get to and talk mostly about what happens when he prays for us. Now remember, again, Jay taught this. It's been several years ago. When Jesus prayed, it was not a suggestion. Even in his humanity, he was praying in agreement with the Father, but Jesus was praying from something that did not exist, and in this prayer, creating something that now does exist. It was kind of beyond a prayer answered, even though the prayer was answered because he was speaking it to the Father. He was speaking from something that hadn't happened yet into something that now does exist. It begins to give us and capture the power of prayer. It begins to tell us what prayer is, that it's a move of authority in an act of obedience when we pray, because the Bible says uh, in Romans that we don't know how to pray and that the Spirit prays through us with utterances that we don't yet understand. We pray what the Holy Spirit gives us to pray so that we're praying in agreement with the Father. That's a snapshot on prayer. You notice, even Jesus prays for himself. There's no, nothing wrong with putting our heart before Jesus and saying, Lord, this is what's going on, and ask Him to respond as only he can do. So let's begin reading, first of all, how he prays for himself. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Got to stop right there. From an eternal beginning to an eternal continuing forever, Jesus is saying, this hour stands out. This is a different hour. And one of the things that begins to grab me in this truth that even as dynamic as creation was, when we go to Genesis chapter 1, where God said, Here is this, and He spoke, and now here's creation. I want to tell you that, that speaking from nothing into something, that creation that we read about, that we hold up and say, This is the very dynamic of God. I want to tell you, even that moment yields to this hour. Because in this hour, He was going to provide a a means and a way for that which did not exist to exist. He was now doing something that would allow somebody that was filthy and corrupt and a sinner and lost and separated from him. He was going to do something that would make that right. That goes beyond the creation process. There's a dynamic in this moment that even Jesus is saying, the hours come. Don't by any means lessen the reality of this hour. Of this time, when Jesus said, above all, this one is going to stand out. The hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify you. All I would ask you as I read this is to recognize now, where does this Christ praying this prayer now live? In us. This Christ praying this prayer, asking this of himself, now lives in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Verse 2 As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life. Eternal life is not heaven someday, eternal life is living eternally in the presence of this person. I don't much care for eternal life if I'm not going to get to live it, not knowing God, not knowing Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's saying, I want you every day in my life. I want you to be the evidence of you. I came by my life to tell the world about you. I want any day, every day, for somebody to look at me and see you. He's asking God, glorify yourself by the actions that I take. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. So now he begins to shift and talk about and pray for the disciples. For I have given unto them the word which thou gave me, and they have received them. And I have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed thou hast sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, and thou hast sent me into the world. Even so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So he's prayed for himself. He's prayed for the unity of the disciples, and that they would be protected, and that God would keep them. But now in verse 20, this is where it shifts. He says, neither I pray for these alone. Notice this. These are going to become very, very important words. But for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and they in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known you, and these have known you, that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let me just ask you this question, and I hope the answer is obvious. When Jesus prayed for those who would believe, based on that word, what was the theme of this prayer? That they might be one. So here's a great dilemma, perplexing dilemma that I have been wrestling with for a couple of weeks. If I were to describe between these two lines, is to the best we can describe it, the church as it has moved through history. This is the consternation that this has created in me. Because I am one that has been saying and talking about the division within the church. Because one of the attributes that we kind of, that plagues us, that we talk about often, is the division. And we go back and we talk about the fact that Satan came to kill, which he does through the spirit of fear. He came to steal, which he does through the spirit of doubt. And he came to destroy, which he does through a spirit of division. We teach that, and I believe it with all my heart, that that the way that he dissects and, and wreaks havoc is by creating division. And we have acknowledged that within the church, it's self-evident. How many denominations? How many differences even within denominations? You know, as Baptists, the standard has always been, and this is true for most denominations, is that we are an autonomous church, so we don't even have to agree what Baptists say. We're kind of, we, we say we are Baptists, but we're autonomous. We can vary from that. So we basically say that we will almost accept any division. Large churches, what happens on Sunday morning? If they have more than one service, what do they call those services? One of them is contemporary, the other is traditional. What would I call that? Division. Division by race, division by socioeconomic standing, and churches begin to be recognized by the division that they stand for. So we have spoken division across the church, recognized and see it. But if that's true, this is the dilemma. This prayer was never answered. So here's the dilemma. When Jesus spoke this, speaking that which did not exist into something that did exist, and said, within the church, among true believers, there will be no division. Do you see the tension? If he spoke that there would be no division, and our testimony is division, our understanding is off here. Something is amiss. Because I would dare to believe that when Jesus prayed this prayer, that within the church, unity the fact that they would be one does exist. So here is a very, very strange possibility. That within this that we have called the church, there is a small group, a smaller group, that are believers according to what Jesus just prayed, and they are one. I believe that prayer was answered, so I believe that this has to exist somewhere. Y'all may not remember this. Right after I became pastor here, there was a a heavy conviction that hit me, even coming by revelation or by vision. There was a picture that came. It came to me at the same time it came to Kendall or within a few days. And the conviction was how many people sitting in the Christian church today are actually lost. And the number was many. The number was many. I won't say most. That might be a stretch, but based on Kendall's vision was, was a pile of people. And he said it was awful because you could see arms and legs and you could see their bodies, and they were in a massive pile, piled up. That I knew in the vision immediately that those aren't the ones who knew they were lost. That wasn't the world. That was the church and the lost people within it. I shared in the Bible study last night that I have almost waged war against the teaching of the sinner's prayer because it does not exist. It has never existed. It's not true within the New Testament. You never find anybody sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ you don't find Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch who says, well, if you'll just pray this prayer, if you don't know it, I'll pray it and you can just say it after me and you'll begin this dynamic relationship with God. We have so, as pastors and as teachers, so cheapened how you get into this relationship that people say, well, I prayed the prayer so I must be a Christian and they are no more a Christian than it didn't happen. But because the teaching has been, well, if you ever came forward, you ever prayed this prayer, then you're saved. Find it. Walk with me through that New Testament and find a single place where that's the way the good news was offered to someone and the response of them was to pray and repeat a prayer that a preacher said does not exist. Jesus said it right here. For those who believe, those who put their trust, those who put their faith, those who are doing exactly what you're doing sitting out there right now, every one of you are demonstrating faith in the pew that you're sitting on. You're letting the full weight of your body rest on a pew that you put your faith in. And again, I could come in here exhausted, stand beside this pew. I could declare to everybody that I, I know about pews. I trust the pews. I think they're strong enough to hold me. But if somebody walked in and they didn't believe in pews, if they couldn't see the pew, every one of you looked very funny. Demonstrating... A faith is something that's invisible to them because I don't know anybody, any one of you who have, would have the physical strength to hold yourself in that position if the pew wasn't there. You see, it'd be a great mystery if they couldn't see the pew when they walked in because they didn't, had never been introduced to the teaching of pews, to putting faith in pews, what a pew would do on your behalf. You're demonstrating faith and there's an evidence of it and there's nothing you can do to help the pew be a pew. So he says, for those who believe, for those who trust, who have put their faith in me they will be one not a question not a maybe not a if we can get enough people together if we can get enough people to agree if we can get enough evangelists or teachers or preachers or counselors to help us then we can create something that is one he spoke it into existence and said this is the church and this is my suspicion and this is where it begins to get a little weighty if it hadn't already my suspicion is between these boundaries we find what Jesus taught, we find the tares that are in the field. We find in this group the thief. We find in this group the goats among the sheep. One of the great tragedies of the Christian church is that we have allowed ourselves to become democracies and never started voting. Tragic. Why? Who all gets to vote up here? All of them. So who carries the church in the direction that it goes when we vote? The majority. The tares among the field. The thief who came in to kill and to steal and destroy. The wolf that came in to create deception gets the vote on the direction that the church goes. Because pastors don't have the personal courage to give leadership and say, I hear from the Lord, this is the direction we're going. This is the move of God for this place. And pastors have lost their courage because if I upset anybody, guess what? I may lose my position. I may even be asked to leave the denomination. I have to give up a lot to preach the truth. But I will tell you today, if we don't begin to teach, then this group of believers is being carried along by the votes of the entire body and nothing within it looks like the will and the purpose of God. And this small group of people, every time, begins to yield to the democracy around them. And they're just saying, I want to lock hands with my brothers and sisters in Christ and worship one true God, put my faith in one Savior, receive one Spirit. It's amazing when you can sit on a plane or find someone, you sit down with them, and you begin to talk in just a few minutes. There's this immediate connection. What are you experiencing? the prayer that they would be one. And this began to hit me and I heard it and it was, and I began to process this. It's like, Lord, what's the answer? You wonder where my urgency comes from, where this passion comes from. I will be held accountable for telling you the truth. I have no desire to build a big church or to, or to fill these pews. I'd love to see it, but it does not compel me. If I don't tell you the truth, we are in even more trouble than what we can personally imagine. I want you to go with me to Jeremiah, begin with Jeremiah 31. Now I want to say before I start reading over here, just for a point of clarification, that that if we were to go to uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, we would read there, the church, this new body of believers, has been grafted in because the old branch, Israel, had been removed and that the new branch... The church has been grafted in in its place. Now, I'll tell you, we didn't replace Israel. Please don't get confused. We have been grafted in, and we certainly read in the Scripture, that, but we're tied to the root that is Israel. We didn't replace them. We've been grafted in to produce the fruit that Israel would not produce. He came into his own, but what happened? They would not accept him. They refused him. So it says, as to as many who would believe, he would make them sons of God. We can, by that token, go back into the Old Testament and look at the promises that he made to Israel because we are now that branch grafted in and we can take, not ownership, but we can come into agreement that those are also spoken over the church grafted into this root. These are promises that are now true to us as well. So we go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll begin reading with verse 31, 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now we're talking about a period after a new covenant, after a new testament. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and we can read this in Hebrews chapter 10, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. He's saying one of the evidences of people of this new covenant, believers found within this new covenant is that they won't have to be told, neighbor not by neighbor, teacher by teacher, even though there will be neighbors and teachers, and preachers and pastors. He's saying, you won't have to go around telling this person to person anymore, and saying, know the Lord, because of this. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But one of the great evidences of a New Testament people, is that each one of us will know the Lord. I will confess that in most churches today, in churches across the world, what people know about the attributes of God, from His grace and justice all the way to His power and authority, and everything in between wouldn't fill a thimble. Because the teaching has been so shallow so that we don't upset people, And we're so busy remarketing the gospel, trying to find something that people will buy. That the truth of who God is and what his justice looks like, what sin actually stands for, what he did for sin and the outcome of sin. And we realize that how easily it's tolerated within the church. And there's a reason for it. We don't even have a high standard of our own life within this relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't even have... Within my Christian life, the same conviction that I have in my relationship with my wife that keeps me because of the fear of any outcome that which holds me in this relationship that drives my behavior, I don't have that with God. We say things about the church. We talk about it. We talk pretty roughly about it. I heard this illustration. Matter of fact, I think it was from Kendall. But if my wife were in United and you walk by, especially as a man, and you see her being accosted or you see seeing her being violated or hurt by two men or four men or six men. And in the name of self-preservation, you walk by and don't help her. I would not only be coming after those six, I would be coming after you. What are we saying about the bride of Christ? I want to tell you, he's noticing that we're violating his bride. He notices. I realize that th- how heavy this is. Let's go to Jeremiah 32. This is where it hits you between the teeth, if it hadn't already. Let me begin reading in uh, verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Listen to this. Don't miss this. Verse 39. And I will give them one heart, and I will give them one way, that they may fear me forever. What is the fear of the Lord today within the church? It's almost gone. He is of no consequence to me. He loves me. He accepts me. I think I, I told this last night, I had a guy in my office a few days ago, and he said, me and the Lord have an understanding. I love him, and I know him. We have this understanding. He kind of puts up with what I put up with, and, and I told him, I said, isn't that special? That this God who sent his only begotten son that your sin might be dealt with, and he kind of came up with an exception for you, and you all have an understanding. He left with a little bit different perspective told him I said I'm going to tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not because I said there is no understanding between you and God he will not compromise on the truth because he said I have one way and I'm going to give everybody who is a part of a New Testament covenant will have one way and they will have one heart and where is the division in that group in this message where's the division not there let me read a little further I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And this is what the covenant's going to say. This is what the covenant is going to do. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. He was saying here what he said later, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never turn away from this group of believers who are constituting those people under this new covenant relationship. I will never turn away from them and I will... In every way, in everything I do, I will bring goodness to them. I will never turn away and stop doing good for them. That would be a great place to stop. And that's not where God stopped. He says, but I will put my fear in their hearts. What's the evidence of a true church? What's the evidence of this group of people who will be one? What will keep them one? The fear of the Lord. One spirit. One truth. One truth. One way, one heart. This is what Jesus was praying for, that they would be one in agreement with what God had established under this new covenant. I'll give them one way and I'll give them one heart. So here's this question. This is the dilemma that sets on my heart. For a group of people across the country who have no fear of the Lord, does that mean that they're not part of this New Testament, this new covenant church, if there is no fear of the Lord? I can't read it any other way. Are people going to stray off? Yes. But what will happen every single time? He'll call them back. He will not leave them. We struggle. I'll use this testimony without Jay's approval. Coming out of college, he left for Portland. I did not know where his heart was. I was uncertain. College, life, not going to church. We knew what we had done. All those years of raising these three kids and and all of a sudden there was a different path that he was taking. I don't believe there was ever a step that Jay took that we couldn't understand that God wasn't on his heels. Culminated in a night when he shared his testimony that he was unemployed and he missed filing the paperwork by midnight and he knew that there would be no money. And the weight that that felt put him on his knees before the Lord. That was the night that the Holy Spirit came. That was, that was the night, the reality. That's the, that's the night, of, according to his testimony, he began to pray in tongues because there were no words. Just this crippling fear, being overwhelmed. I believe, I, at least in my picture, that every step that Jay had taken that we were uncertain about. in life had already begun to change for him at that point. But I want to tell you, that night, God caught up. There was an encounter in that night because of the fear of the Lord. Ree and Amanda both said that one of the tragedies of the church today is, is that there is no fear of the Lord. We don't live like we even know who he is. We don't live with any concern that our lives be the reflection that he prayed for. Not that we would just be one, not that we'd get along. But as his father and him were one, so that he became the evidence of his father. What should unity within this body create? You should be able to look at that that New Testament group that he's talking about here that has one way and has one heart and has the fear of the Lord that's been placed in them. You look at that group and and this isn't a sad group that's sitting in the middle of everything just with their heads bowed. This is the most exciting group on the face of the earth. They're changing the world because they know who they are and they know who he is. They understand this relationship. Let me read just a little bit further and we'll be dismissed. And I will put my fear, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make this everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Ooh, how many people call themselves Christians, have this check by their name and maybe a certificate that they were handed and have absolutely no evidence of a relationship with God at all. I say this, and again, The reason I I prayed what I prayed at the beginning, that this would hit hearts correctly, is because there is nothing worse than sitting in this middle, believing someone is saved, just for the relief that that brings me. I would much rather know, for myself and for others, I would much rather know where they stood with the Lord so that I could actually pray and understand something, instead of just under this umbrella say that oh, they're saved because they went through this at some point. I would much rather know, and begin to address in prayer the reality that someone's saved rather than put a check by their name and say, I don't have to worry about that, they're saved, they're going to heaven someday. Sounds good. Very calming to throw this mass of people in here and say they're all saved because they said this prayer or because someone led them or the worst one that I have heard I shared last night was a pastor told this person, "said well, if you, know, if you don't want to repeat this, if you don't want to speak out loud, when well, I'm going to pray it and if you agree with it, just squeeze my hand. They entered into the kingdom of God and began this great journey and had an encounter with Jesus Christ and there was nothing that would come out of their mouth. So the only thing required, we got it down to the fact we don't have to even say anything, just squeeze my hand and you'll be saved. Just find it anywhere. The jailer radically changed. The eunuch radically changed. The people in Acts chapter 6 who when they came and said we're we're, we're still actually functioning under the baptism of of John the Baptist and the disciples said no you can't do that you got to be baptized in the reality of Jesus Christ and immediately upon that moment they began to prophesy because something radical changed within them and we have made salvation a moment in time we get to put a check but the life before and the life after looks exactly alike nothing changed and pastors are passing that off somehow as good news no good news in it. Deception, And guess who does it? Last verse. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. God is saying, when you put your faith in me, I'm going to do some pretty radical things. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come dwell in you if you'll let me. Some of the conviction of even what I've been teaching recently kind of slammed up against this because I have found myself And within my teaching, making excuses for this group upon this reality, it's like you're just excusing the tares. So I told you to leave them there because it would disrupt everything, but I didn't tell you to bow down to them. I can tell you, most pastors, especially young ones, who are trying to build a name for themselves and be able to have a success in a church so that they can actually move up to another church, are pandering to the goats, the thieves, and the tares. And there's a true body of believers in there that are about to starve to death and lacking for attention. If that's not true, if there's division in the believers, true believers, then John chapter 17's prayer has never been answered. The new covenant didn't work. I choose to believe the prayer of John 17 happened and was answered. And we are a new covenant people. Both are true. They are. We've got a lot of cards within our hand that we need to be looking at, saying, why do we not look by the fear of the Lord exactly like Him? Seeing people's lives radically changed, healed, saved, not for a record, not for a check mark, but for the radical difference that God intended to make when He sent His Son in the first place and gave us the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that this message would bring pieces of confusion together that we could accept it as truth and find the power in it to bring assurance to bring a calm to bring a direction whatever was designed in this message for each heart that it it hit the mark that that it doesn't bring heaviness and tragedy it brings clarity and purpose and hope and direction that we might see many, many people awakened to the reality of who you are and what you came to do that this is true within this scripture it's not made up and we don't get to adjust it thank you by the way for giving us one heart and giving us one way and putting in our hearts the fear of the lord thank you for the fulfillment of a prayer spoken and a covenant promise made that we get to realize today you have made us one, not because we mentally and emotionally agree, but because we are bound together by one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, as you told us so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There may be many members, but there's one Spirit that creates this oneness that gives us the way, gives us the heart. In Jesus' name, amen.